Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. It's great to be with you this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Austin, one of the pastors here at RCB, and I get to continue our sermon series this morning that we're calling Seek First, where we're looking at the life of Jesus and the way that, that he engages with different people, engages people in ways that, that increases their hunger for God, or people who are spiritually hungry, hungry for more. And so we're in our passage this morning that you just heard read in John 12. And just to, to set the scene a little bit more for you, to build the context here, John 12 is kind of this pivot point in the Gospel of John. So there's been, there's 21 chapters in John, the first 12 are kind of Jesus' public ministry. Well, some things happened in 12 that actually closed the door on Jesus' public life. And from 13 on, it's more of a private ministry to the disciples, to his apostles, and then his crucifixion and resurrection. And so this is the end of his public life in chapter 12. And what just happened and has kind of spurred that a little bit, in chapter 11, he rose, or he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, it's not something, right, that, that happens every day. And so doing this, raising Lazarus from the dead, creates this, this stir amongst the people in the area. Like, uh, Lazarus was in Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And so there's this big stir, and people are coming and like bearing witness to what Jesus did and wanting to learn more. And so there's this huge palpable like expectation, anticipation of, of what's going to happen at the Passover, what's going to happen, who this Jesus fellow is. And there's also the Pharisees who don't quite have this same anticipation, right? They're not actually anticipating, man, what could God possibly be doing here? But instead, they're more worried about their own place, their own power, their own standing. And it says in, in chapter 11, John chapter 11, verse 48, the Pharisees, they're talking about Jesus and they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. They're worried about holding on to their place and their nation. And so we see Jesus uh, he continues into Jerusalem, chapter 12, uh, begins with the triumphal entry, kind of the Palm Sunday uh, idea where he comes in, people are excited, wondering what's going to happen, and we get down, there's this palpable buzz, right? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one who's going to free us from the power of Rome? Is he the one who's going to restore Israel to its former glory? 
and the Pharisees, they continue to deepen in their fear. 12.19, right before our passage this morning, which begins in verse 20, the Pharisees say, look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. Feels to them like they just are losing their grip, losing their ability to lead, to have power, and they're seeing that Jesus has real power, even to raise the dead, and that people are flocking to him, and so they resolve to take swift action at this point. And so it's kind of this big turning point in the story. And so as we come to, to chapter 12, verses 20 through 26 this morning, this is what's going on. This is kind of the, the circumstance that Jesus finds himself in the middle of. And then we have this scene of these non-Jewish visitors who have come to Jerusalem for the Passover. So read verse 20 with me. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now this might, this might seem to you like a passing detail, but it's actually really critical here. They come to the feast to worship. So these Greeks, they're not just religious tourists, right? They're not just coming in. They want to observe kind of some cultural, religious uh, experience that, that is in this kind of foreign and exotic place. No, they come to Jerusalem during the Passover to worship. And if you come to worship during the Passover, you're coming to worship Yahweh, you're coming to worship the God of Israel, you're coming to worship the one that Jesus calls Father. And so they're here for the feast. They're serious enough to make the trick. So it shows that they have this real spiritual hunger, right? They have this real longing to know God. They've assuming they've been a part of the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. They've heard the, the stories, the myths, the, they know the deities of their time, and they said, no, this isn't enough. We're looking for more. And so they come, they, they're, they're, they're seeking after the things of God, and it leads them actually to seek Jesus. They want to know more about this Jesus guy to see if this is what they're longing for. And so it's, it's, it's important that it is Passover. This is kind of the, the Super Bowl of Jewish holidays. Uh, it's kind of like the Easter, kind of like Easter's the Super Bowl of Christian holidays. You know, the Passover is, is the, big, the big one for the Jewish faith. And so it marks this time, uh, it marks the story of God rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt. And there's this reenactment of the Passover lamb being slain and the blood saving the people of God from death and liberating them out of slavery and bondage. And so it's no accident that, and this is, a, this is another sermon for another day, but it's no accident that Jesus is crucified during Passover because he is the Lamb of God whose blood saves the people of God and liberates them from their slavery, from their bondage. And so this story Right, like this is this is no accident, but that that's a story for another day. But all this to say, it's the Passover. The Greeks are there; they want to see Jesus, and so they come. They come to the disciples and say, in verse twenty-one, they say, "We want to see Jesus." And so they're making they're making their request known. Right, that's it's always a good thing. Let your request be made known to God. And so they come to the disciples. They say, "We want to see Jesus." And it's interesting enough that they get caught up in this kind of religious red tape. Like they come to Philip and Philip 
doesn't really know what to do. So Philip then goes to Andrew. Andrew's kind of the crisis management guy, right? He's like, what do we do? There's these Greeks who want to see Jesus. Andrew doesn't actually have an answer for him, surprisingly. Andrew's like, well, why don't we go ask Jesus? I don't, I don't know what to do. And you might be thinking, like, this seems kind of weird, right? Like, somebody wants to see Jesus. They should just be able to see Jesus, right? Like, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. But you have to remember in the, in the time and in the context, right, these are, these are Jewish men, and so they have no framework for Gentiles being brought into, like, the inner ring of the things of God. So even, even at the Passover, right, when people are coming into the temple to worship, Gentiles can't go but so far. There's a wall that separates them, being able to enter in deeper into the presence of God. And so there's kind of this, there's still this natural barrier, right? Because they're Greek, because they're not Jewish. They're not part of Israel, right? They're not a part, they're not, they don't have access to these things. And so the disciples, they still don't get that. Now, Jesus has been talking about that. It's not that they shouldn't understand it. Jesus has been talking about this. But we know not only did they not get it here, um, if you look in the book of Acts, like the first half of the book is the apostles struggling with this question of like, what do we do with Gentiles who believe in, the, in Jesus as the Messiah? We see that over and over again in the first half of Acts. They're still struggling and wrestling with what to do with Gentiles. And so it's not shocking, I guess, that they don't get it here, but but Jesus has, has already talked about it. He's made it clear. If you if you look at John 10, verse 16, Jesus is talking about the Gentiles. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, not of the fold of Israel. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. The Gentiles are the sheep that are not of this fold, the sheep that are not of the fold of Israel. But Jesus is making it clear. He's been making it clear that there's going to be one family, one fold, one flock of God underneath his lordship. A place of two that are going to become one. And so there's no longer going to be Jew and Gentile, but there'll be one under his rule. Ethnic division, ethnic division is going to be done away with forever, ushering in the fullness of God's multi-ethnic vision. The Apostle Paul is actually one of the first of Jesus' followers to get this concept in like total clarity. Uh, if you look at Ephesians 2, which I would submit to you is perhaps the best explanation of the gospel that there is, uh, he talks about that there's the vertical and horizontal nature of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. That salvation is both vertical and horizontal. In verses 1 through 10, he talks about how Jesus has reconciled us to God by the cross. And then in verses 11 through 22, it talks about how Jesus has reconciled us to one another by the cross. There's no way to have vertical without horizontal. The two go hand in hand. And so, well, let's read Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, 
so making peace, it might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The gospel of Christ, it brings reconciliation between God and humanity and humanity within itself. Divisions and hostilities between ethnic groups are done away with at the cross. They're brought into one new body in place of two. And this is why if you read the New Testament, you see that the churches that are being planted are all multi-ethnic. They don't make the decision to follow the kind of the idea of the homogenous unit principle um, of where we're going to plant a Jewish church and we're going to plant a Greek church, right? They plant all, they enter into this messiness, right? The messiness of mixing ethnicities, of mixing races, and they, they plant churches that reflect the work of the cross, that God has reconciled into one body, all people. Pastor Brian Loritz, uh, he, in his book, Insider Outsider, he describes it like this. He says, with conversions happening rapidly among both groups, Paul does not go to the pragmatic route, starting two churches for the two distinct ethnicities. This would have been the easy thing to do, of course, but Paul would have none of it. To Paul, the vertical reconciliation required nothing less than horizontal reconciliation. And the theater in which this was to be enacted was the local church. This is what Philip and Andrew, this is what the apostles at the beginning of Acts, this is what they've yet to comprehend. That God has reconciled all people to himself through the cross. That Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. So these Greeks who show up at Passover, they couldn't get past the wall because there was like a literal wall in the temple that the Gentiles couldn't go beyond. And Jesus actually is going to tear down that wall. There's no longer going to be insiders and outsiders to the things of God. There's no longer going to be haves and haves-nots, but everyone will have access to God equally through the blood of Christ. When he rips the veil and when he tears down the wall, the presence of God is now mediated and made available to all. There's no distinctions. They're no longer this JV experience that the Gentiles are allowed. The Gentiles have full access. And, and this is monumental, right? You can't understate this point, this moment, that, that there is no more Jew and no more Gentile, but all are one. It's the subsequent creation of one flock, one body, one church, one family, and the place of where there have been two. Uh, Pastor Tony Evans, he explains it like this. Speaking of Jesus, he says, he has reconciled racially divided groups into one new man, uniting them into a new body so that the church can function in unity. The church is the place where racial, gender, and class distinctions are no longer to be divisive because of our unity in Christ. This does not negate differences that remain intact. Oneness simply means that those differences are embraced. Joining our unique strengths together, we have strength to strength, making a more complete and balanced whole based on our mutual relationship with and commitment to Christ. The arrival of these Greeks seeking Jesus, it marks the dawn of a new era in the people of God, for the people of God.
And Jesus, he recognizes the moment as such. When the news comes to him, when Philip and Andrew bring him the news, he responds. There's this catalytic response that triggers something deep within him, and he says that the hour has come. Read with me verse 23. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. At last, this hour has come. All throughout the Gospel of John, you're going to see Jesus saying, The hour has not yet come. It is not yet my hour. It's not my hour. But with the arrival of these Greeks, suddenly, it's the hour. The hour has arrived. What is he talking about? What is this, what is this hour? And why are these, why did these couple of Greeks looking for a meeting, why is that such a big deal? Well, the hour of his glorification here is, is actually the hour of his death. And it's through his death, right, that, that the wall is torn down, that the veil is open. And see, these Greeks, it's more than just these couple of guys coming to see Jesus. This is the arrival of the nations of the earth, seeking the salvation of God. The arrival of the nations, looking for the salvation of God. It's the sheep from the other fold, right? Coming and wanting to be a part of God's family. And so it's time. It's time to bring the two folds into one, to bring the two families into one. And we learned that this can't happen without the cross. As you keep reading here into verse 24, you might initially think like, oh, this doesn't really seem like he's answering the question. It kind of seems like he's just talking about something else all of a sudden. But if we look at it closely, we'll see that he's responding not necessarily to those particular Greeks themselves, but to what they represent. He's, he's speaking to the world, to the nations of the earth that they represent. Read verse 24 with me. He says, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is talking about himself. He says, if you want to see me, if you want to, to understand who I really am, I am the one who will die so that the fruit of, the, of life will sprout for all nations. I must die so that life can sprout for you. For you, you know, you particular Greeks who are asking this question, but for the nations, the peoples, the Gentiles, which you represent, to see me, I must die. I must endure the cross. And I'm willing to do it. I'm going to do it. The hour has arrived, and I'm not going to escape it. I'm going to be obedient to this hour of death. And Jesus confirms this later on in chapter 12, down in verse 32, where he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When Jesus is lifted up from the earth, when he's lifted up upon that cross later that week, the cross will become the magnet to which the nations of the earth are drawn. The magnet that the peoples of the earth are drawn to. His death will multiply life for the world. And this, this shouldn't come as a surprise, right? We looked at John 10 where he talks about bringing sheep from other fold, but if you look through the whole story of the Bible, right, God has been hinting, not so subtly, like he's been hinting very clearly 
at this the whole time. Uh, you think about Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, like, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. You can jump to, to Micah 4, where he says that, that many nations are going to come to the mountain of the Lord, desiring to be taught God's ways. These Greeks are coming to the mountain of the Lord. Jerusalem is up on a mountain, right? The Temple Mount. These Greeks are coming. The nations are coming to the mountain of the Lord to be taught the ways of God. It's all through the book of Isaiah. One example, chapter 49. God says it's too small of a thing to bring back for his Messiah to restore just the house of Israel, but that his Messiah will be a light to the nations so that his salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. And if you want to look ahead, you know, we got Revelation 7 where we see this future vision of the kingdom of God in its fullness. And you see this, this innumerable multitude of people from every tribe and nation and language gathering before the throne of God and worshiping. This is what God has been about. He's been working to bring all peoples, all nations, people from any everywhere into his family belonging at his table as part of the one flock worshiping him this has been the plan all along to have this rich multi-ethnic global harvest of people as a part of his family and jesus is the grain of wheat which has to fall to the earth and die in order that the fruit of those seeds would bear life for the nations that those who did not and do not know God would have the ability to know him, would have the access to his presence. One commentator, he puts it like this. He says, just as the fruit cannot come into existence without the death of the seed, so also must the unique son die for the children of God to come into existence. The cross of Christ is the foundational element of the gospel is through the cross, through the blood of Jesus, that all people are brought into his family, that the wall is torn down, that the veil is torn, that we all have access to the presence of God, to the things of God, that we all can see and know like the Greeks wanted. We can all see Jesus for who he really is. And this is a glorious thing that God has done. He has ransomed from all tribes and peoples, from the ends of the earth, people to worship him, people to belong at his table. And for those of us who do know him, the text goes on to tell us that we have a crucial part in advancing that mission and continuing that work of Christ. Although Jesus is referring to himself here as the grain of wheat, he, its application isn't just to him, it applies to his followers as well. Because in the way of following Jesus, it's through death that life comes, that life is multiplied. It's not just an agricultural concept, but it's the way of discipleship for his followers. And he continues to call his followers to count the cost of discipleship, to count the cost of following him in 25 and 26. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. 
If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus isn't saying that we earn our salvation this way, but he's saying that this is the necessary outworking of those who follow him, of those for whom he has died. This is the call that we must take on, a call to self-denial, a call to servanthood, a call to emulate Jesus by dying to self and living for the things of God. And it's important to recognize that it is the, it's also that second part of living to the things of God. It's not just denial and emptying yourself for the sake of just emptying yourself, but it's dying so that you might live to the ways of God. It's called to a rightly ordered life that is driven first and foremost by the love of God. Jesus puts it another way in Luke 9, 23, where he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. It's a call to emptying and filling, a call to denial and acceptance, a call to death and life, death to the ways of the world, death to the desires of the flesh, but life for the sake of the kingdom, life so that others might know and see Jesus for who he truly is. Following Jesus is the greatest thing that you can ever do, but at the same time, it's going to be the hardest thing that you can do. It comes with a cost, but it also comes with a great reward. If you notice in this text, every call to decrease is paired with an increase, a promised increase. The death and decrease of the seed brings a promised increase of fruit. The decrease of hating life in this world, you know, not loving life more than we love God, uh, is paired with the promise of life eternal. The, the decrease of service and following, it brings a promise of God, uh, of being with Christ, where I am, you will be also, and of honor from God. And from worldly, you know, Americanized standards, this, this equation doesn't make sense. This isn't an equation that you would choose. It's an odd strategy. But the more we decrease, the more downward displacement we allow, the greater the increase of life, the greater the abundance and multiplication of fruit for the kingdom of God. Laying down our lives is being on mission for Christ. It's a call to mission. It advances the mission of God for people who don't know him to know him. It helps bring those who don't know him into his one big family. And so the question a question for you this morning to reflect on is how can you live in the way of Jesus for the sake of those who don't know God? And what might Jesus want to rearrange in your life so that others can see and know him through you? What might you want to rearrange? You know, Jesus didn't withhold his own life so that we who didn't know God might be able to see him and be a part of his one family. And he invites us into the same mission along with him. He wants us to live our lives for the sake of others knowing him, finding belonging at his table. How far are we willing to go to see the fruit of the cross multiplied? Is there anything, is there any limits 
your obedience. The Greeks at the Passover, they wanted to see Jesus. And Jesus shows them infinitely more than they could have imagined. He shows them that anyone from anywhere can be a part of God's family. There's no more insiders and outsiders. And for those of us who have experienced this belonging, our call is to live cruciform lives, to live cross-shaped lives that show everyone the glory of Jesus and the reconciling work that he has done through the cross. We've been given a place at God's one big table by the sacrifice of Christ, by the cross. And so our calling then is, our prayer is that we would be a people, that we would be a people who live into Jesus's example by laying down our lives so that others might come to find that they belong in his family as well. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your cross. We thank you that when your hour came, Lord, you didn't, you didn't run. Lord, but you willingly submitted yourself to the will of the Father, that you willingly laid down your life so that we might live. We thank you that you have torn down the dividing walls that divide, the things that divide, the things that provoke hostility, Lord, that you have put those to rest at your cross. And Lord, we pray that you would empower us to live in this, in this way. On a mission for you, laying down our lives for your sake and for the sake of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I encourage you, as we do each and every week, um, to participate in communion in, in whatever way that's possible for you. And so we remember the work of Jesus, the things that he has done, his death on the cross, that he has reconciled us into one family, that we're seated around one table, that there's one body of Christ. And communion is this time where we think about what will happen in the new creation, that there's going to be this, this kingdom feast, this great wedding banquet of Christ where we're going to feast with one another in fullness. And so we, we celebrate that and anticipate that now when we, when we partake in the Lord's Supper together. And we remember that, his, that the bread is his body broken for us and that the, the wine is his blood shed for us. So as you're sent out on mission for Christ this week, uh, hear these words as a benediction uh, sending you out into the world. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.